Good morning. It's a real joy to be here again. Kathy and I so much appreciate you. And thank you again for your war, very warm welcome to us. We just love it. And it's uh, good to be to have it as an introduction, a song like that, at His feet. Amen. That's a good place to be. And we just thank the Lord that He does lift us up also when we're down. Uh, this morning I'd like to begin a two-part series today and next week on the theme of getting to know what God is like. And obviously, because of who God is, infinite, these studies will be obviously introductory. Uh, Turn in your Bibles, if you would please, to the book of Job, chapter 8. Job is easy to find because the middle of your Bible is the book of Psalms, and then the book of Job is just before Psalms. Job chapter 8, and I'd like to read the first 13 verses. You remember Job had three friends who sought to counsel him. Their bedside manner was not very good, as you may recall. And uh, this is one of those friends. And uh, here he speaks in chapter 8, verse 1. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered, How long will you say these things and the words of your mouth be a mighty wind? Does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert what is right? If your son sinned against him, then he delivered them into the power of their transgression. If you would seek God and implore the compassion of the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, surely now he would rouse himself for you and restore your righteous estate. Though your beginning was insignificant, yet your end will increase greatly. Please inquire of past generations and consider the things searched out by their fathers, for we are only of yesterday and know nothing, because our days on earth are as a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you and bring forth words from their minds? Can the papyrus grow up without a marsh? Can the rushes grow without water? While it is still green and not cut down, yet it withers before any other plant." So are the paths of all who forget God, and the hope of the godless will perish. Let's pray together. Father, we have just read your word. And we pray, Father, that you would translate these words and make them to be alive and mighty and powerful as we consider what you have to say to us. Bless our time together. May the name of Jesus be glorified. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Job, as I'm sure most of you know, is part of the Bible called Wisdom Literature. And one of the characteristics of Wisdom Literature is that we have men and women striving to understand who God is. 
And they do that by observing the effect, certain effects in their lives. And if they judge the effects to be good effects, then they say that God was just and had rewarded that individual's behavior. If there's a bad effect, then they judge that that person had sinned and that God was angry and that God would therefore punish them. We still have that same kind of thinking in our world today. People speak of good karma and bad karma. There's the chakra or wheel of life. For some it is good and for others it is bad. And here we have Job. During one part of his life, he prospered. And therefore, people said this meant that God approved of him. Most of the story of the book of Job, however, deals with Job in the dumps, diseased, bereft of ten children, all of his possessions, all gone. And the conclusion reached by the people of his day is that Job must certainly be the worst of sinners. And this book of Job, in almost every chapter, poses a very important question about the nature of God, of who He is. The book of Job seems to ask a question very insistently. God, where are you in all of my trials? He further says, I really object to what has happened to me. In our chapter for today, chapter 8, Bildad, one of Job's three friends, is answering the question, what is God really like? And this obviously is a very important question. One which has engaged the, the best minds for, in our world for a very long time. And because it's such an important question, we, We have many schools of theology, and theology means the study of God. And so we have these schools of theology seeking to understand and study God. Well, Bildad's answer to the question, what is God like, is not very satisfactory to Job. Nor is it satisfying to many Christians. Bildad seems to have missed the boat in this chapter and in other chapters in which he speaks. Bildad seems to represent God as a big policeman in the sky. He's got a big club in his hand, and he's ready to pounce on any who stray. And as I think of Bildad in this representation, I ask myself, Where is Bildad going wrong? What's wrong with the picture that Bildad is painting? Well, Bildad and his friends are one-dimensional people and therefore see God as a one-dimensional God. What do I mean by that? And this is very, very important. 
Throughout his address, Bildad portrays God only, only as a God of justice, who is doing what he had to do to people who had sinned. Now, as Christians, I'm sure we agree that God is indeed a God of justice, perfect justice. But we also know that God is so much more than this one-dimensional view. He is also a God of love, a God of compassion, a God of mercy, a God of patience, a God who wants to be known, a God who forgives, a God who redeems, a God who justifies, and we could go on. Let me say again, yes, He is a God of justice, but He's more. So much more. And I have a little poem that I'd like to read that illustrates what I'm saying. I don't know who the author is. The author is unknown. The poem goes like this. We can only see a little of the ocean when we stand at the rocky shore. But out there beyond the eye's horizon, there's more. There's more. We can only see a little of God's loving, a few rich samples of His mighty store. But out there, beyond the eye's horizon, there's more. There's more. Several years ago, I was interviewing a Jewish architect for some work that we wanted to have done at the Bible school where I taught and where, among other things that I taught, was the book of Job. Following our interview, he said to me, as he pointed to the various buildings on campus, What is this? What's this place all about? I told him that we were a Bible school. Then I told him a little bit about our purpose. And He then said to me, I have lost whatever faith I had when I learned of the destruction of six million Jews. If there is a God, he said, how could he have permitted such a great injustice? This man believed that if there was a God, he would have to be a God of perfect justice. I said to the man, I don't pretend to understand why six million Jews were killed. But I do do want to say something about the justice of God. So would you allow me a question? I said, suppose if whenever any individual did wrong, the God of justice immediately took his life. That would be just. Then I said, how many people do you suppose would be alive today? (laughs) He said, I don't suppose very many. I said, God is indeed a God of justice, but he is also a God of patience. And he gives people the opportunity to repent. You know what he said? Thank God. This God that he didn't believe in. Thank you. Isn't it amazing? God's refusal to immediately overwhelm and put down all moral failures. 
Because we'd all be put down. We all know that we live here on earth for a little while. And the Scripture says that after this, the judgment where God will judge with perfect justice. But today, today is the day of salvation. And friends, it is not wise to test the patience of God and think that we may have yet another day. We are not promised endless tomorrows. We don't know about tomorrow. And I would like for us then to to look at our Bibles and look at chapter 8 and notice how Bildad presents his case. Bildad is forceful and he's analytical in his speech about God and man. And Bildad is going to tell us from his point of view what God is like. Bildad in chapter 8 tells us that God is a God of justice. And as far as he goes, I have no argument with that. And the rest of the chapter, chapter 8, is designed to bolster this one main point. And of course, this is an obvious application to Job and his suffering. I have two main points And then I'd like to draw some conclusions. Point number one that Bildad makes is, of course, God is a God of justice. And point number two that Bildad uh, draws upon are some illustrations from nature and from life that suggest that God is a God of justice. Then I'd like to draw some conclusions. The God of perfect justice. And I just lost my place here. Bildad, in opening his speech, has no time for Asian niceties. He immediately accuses Job of being nothing more than a windbag. Did you notice that? Verse 2. How long will you say these things and the words of your mouth be a mighty wind? Job, you're a windbag. You don't know what you're talking about. You're full of hot air. And this obviously sets the tone for how Bildad feels about Job. And we therefore do not expect to find a great deal of sympathy for Job. Bildad has two questions in verse 3 about God's justice. And I want you to notice those questions. Verse 3, does God pervert justice? Or, does the Almighty pervert what is right? Two, Two great questions. And interestingly, these questions that he asks about God's justice are based on the peculiar and particular name of God that he mentions in that verse. There are two Hebrew words for God in verse 3. First, the word God itself is the Hebrew word El, E-L. And the word Almighty is the Hebrew word Shaddai. El Shaddai. This means the all-powerful. 
the Almighty, the Omnipotent One. And the way this is used in the text is like this. It is perfectly unthinkable and quite impossible that the Almighty and the All-Powerful would ever be anything but just in His dealings with men. He tells that to Job. Bildad presents to, God, to, to Job a God of justice. And His all-powerful nature is behind His justice. He will exact justice. Bildad is a moralist. And everything for him can be explained in two kinds of men. First, there is the pure man in verse 6. And then there is the godless man, as in the second part of verse 13. There are two kinds of people, pure and godless. God distinguishes, Bildad says, between these men by prospering one and destroying the other. And to suggest that it happens otherwise is to throw doubt on God's justice. And that's why he uses this particular word for God here. El Shaddai. El Shaddai won't let people get away with their evil deeds. And he will reward those who do good. And he's able to do it because he's almighty. And that's what Job's essential, uh, Bildad's essential argument is. Now, our problem is, as we look at our world, we don't always see Justice being worked out in the world, even over long periods of time. Uh, we see numbers of problems here and there. And uh, we wonder what's, what's going on in our world. Because some of the evil seem to be doing okay. They seem to be prospering. And some people that are, uh, are doing pretty well are just not functioning as they would like. Now, I'm a person that uh, clips and saves newspaper articles. And I found one that I think illustrates the frustration with the lack of justice in our world. It's from the Wall Street Journal, September 17, 1981. You wouldn't believe that I would keep stuff like that, did you? But here it is. And it says... Does the punishment fit the crime? There's a major crime committed in America. This is 1981 now. These statistics are probably worse. There's a crime committed in America at the rate of one every three seconds. A murder every 24 minutes. A robbery every 68 seconds. An assault every 51 seconds. A burglary every 10 seconds. A theft every five seconds. And the odds are narrowing that you will be a victim of a bodily or property assault. But the person who commits a crime, and here's the point now, the person who commits a crime has only a one in five chance of being arrested and a one in 100 chance of going to jail. The article is not very satisfied with our justice system. It goes on. Our criminal justice system is inadequate. 
Perhaps Lady Justice should train in her blindfold for an eye patch. The eye, the eye with the patch would retain impartiality, but the other eye would look for ways to protect you. Justice. And so we ask, where is justice in our world? And we look and we look and we look. And we don't always see justice. And uh, Bildad has invoked the name of El Shaddai, the God, the Almighty God who supposedly exacts perfect justice quickly. In 1885, in his three essays on religion, John Stuart Mills, you may have heard that name, wrote, In the law of all creation, where justice and the, crea- and where justice and the Creator omnipotent, if they were that, then in whatever amount of suffering, happiness would be dispensed equally with justice with regard to evil deeds. In other words, a just and powerful God would bring happiness for good deeds and suffering for evil deeds. Sounds a little bit like Bildad to me. And I think there's a little bit of Bildad probably in all of us as we look at what's going on in the world. How many here would like to see justice done to Saddam Hussein? Yeah, sure. Naturally, it seems fair that good should be rewarded and evil should be punishment, punished. Now, before we address this issue, I'd like for us to continue in, ch- in chapter 8 and notice how Bildad reinforces his views of what God is like through several illustrations. Verse 4. I want you to notice how Bildad reasons. He says to Job, If your sons sinned against him, and then if he delivered them into the power of their transgression. Let's just stop there. Job's children were all destroyed. And Bildad is saying they therefore must have been evil. They must have sinned. Now here you're telling a father that. Remember that. He's telling a father that. Your ten children, the seven sons and your three daughters, were killed because they were terrible sinners. Job had been concerned about the secret sins of his children's lives. And he had offered sacrifices for each of them in chapter 1 and verse 5. So we know something's wrong here. If Bildad's reason is valid and we remember the sick among us, Kathleen had a stroke 13 years ago. You ever wonder what her sins were? And my two replacement knees that I have right now, they're actually doing pretty well. Praise the Lord. Do you wonder what my sins were that caused me to have 
this pain that I endured for two or three years. And anyone else sick among you? Are you pointing the finger and saying, I wonder what sins they've committed because of their problem? That's what Bildad was doing. And then you might also ask, why were you spared? If you're doing well and you're healthy and strong and fit, uh, what did you do so well so that, that merited uh, your being uh, in such good health, etc.? Are you better than those who have been sick? Uh, we need to ask some questions here. And uh, I know these are not easy questions, and, and this whole issue is, a, uh, is an issue, I think, that we need to think about and think about as clearly as we can. In verses 8 to 10, Bildad goes on to bolster his case by appealing to the wisdom of the past as if he, what he is saying is common knowledge. And I think all of us here would agree that uh, ancient authority is valuable. And the key to understanding lessons from the past is to ask, do they instruct us or do they shackle us? What about the wisdom from the past? Thirdly, in verses 11-19, Bildad sketches very brilliantly some pictures, some metaphors from nature which illustrate the destruction of the wicked. And we'll look just at one of them. Verse 11. Can the papyrus grow up without a marsh? Can the rushes grow without water? And the answer to both questions is no. No, they cannot. Verse 12 says, While it is still green, the papyrus, and not even cut down, yet it withers before any other plant. If water is removed from the papyrus and the rush, they wither very rapidly. That's the nature of these plants. And obviously, Job's water has been removed. And Job is shriveling and dying as a consequence. That's what Bildad is telling him. Look at those papyrus. Look at the marshes. I know if I don't water my garden, uh, it starts to shrivel too. And uh, so he draws from this lesson from nature that if you remove these essential good thing, it will shrivel. And that's what was happening to Job. And even nature, the argument here goes, illustrates how God's justice works. Job, you should be concerned. Vinced. Well, what conclusions do we draw from all of this? And where did Bildad go wrong in his portrayal of God? What is God really like? First of all, I'd like to repeat that Job, that Bildad is a one-dimensional God. Uh, uh, that he has a one-dimensional God. That God is a God of justice, Period. Period. Bildad in this chapter does not recognize that God is a God of forgiveness. 
For him the sacrifices that Job offered for his children, they were of no avail. Nothing, as far as Bildad was concerned, could come between sin and its consequences. The only alternative in life is for all of us to be pure and upright. Now, I wonder what Bildad would do with the book of Romans. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who does good, not even one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You know that word all? It means all. It means all. But fortunately, that is not the whole story. There is a way for a man to be righteous. And listen to what the book of Romans also says. The righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Romans 3.22 God presents Jesus as the sacrifice of atonement. He did this to demonstrate His justice. How does this demonstrate God's justice? Well, perfect justice always says that evil must be punished. And justice was satisfied at the cross when Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. Justice was satisfied. Forgiveness was satisfied. The loving nature of God was vindicated. And Jesus' death through which we receive righteousness comes through our faith in Christ, through our belief in Him that He took our peace. Bildad knew nothing about substitutionary atonement. And this is where God's perfect justice is satisfied and He can also be merciful and forgiving to the sinner. Bildad knew nothing about a God of patience. Bildad was of the belief that justice was always carried out swiftly and the proof was in those who prospered and those who suffered. And listen what the Apostle Peter has to say. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. What value is there in the lay of rewards and punishment? Rewards and punishment seem to be delayed. What, re, what, what uh, purpose is there? What value is there? And I'd like to suggest a twofold response. For the unbeliever, delay presents a prolonged opportunity for, depend, for repentance. I'm glad God waited for me. Aren't you glad He waited for you? 
The warning, however, is that one should not despise the goodness of God. It is appointed to men once to die, and after this, the judgment. The response for the believer, delay provides an opportunity for deepening our faith and purifying our motives. And suffering has a unique way of casting us on God. Bildad's view of justice was totally misapplied in the case of Job. The Apostle Peter again says, even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. The choice to do the right is often costly and part of that cost may be suffering. God is a God of justice, but there is more. There is more. And when we, we come to a place like this, justice has been exacted at the cross. For those that refuse that justice at the cross, there will be a time of judgment before God himself. And then perfect justice will be applied. And as Psalm 1 says, the wicked cannot stand before judgment, before the judgment of God. We will be unable to stand. And so this morning, or early afternoon, I'd like to um, invite any here who would like to experience the grace of God more than the justice of God. This is a great opportunity. This is the time when we can all experience His grace. Because He offers it freely. That's, that's what our God is like. He's a God of grace. He's a God who loves to redeem. He's a God who loves to forgive. He's a God who loves to reconcile, bring, bring together. And so this morning I'd like to invite any here to come to Christ and receive that forgiveness and uh, not be subject to the God of justice, that justice which already fell on Christ. I'm going to pray now and I'd like to ask that any who would like to receive Christ this morning to raise, just raise their hands very quickly, put your hand up and... and uh, and say, yes, I would like to experience the grace of God today, this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you in Jesus' name. And we thank you, Lord, for being a God of grace. A God of forgiveness. A God who is patient. A God who is loving. A God who reaches out to men and women everywhere and calls on 
people to repent and come to Him. So, Father, we do pray this morning that uh, You would bless this little gathering of Your people. And we pray, Father, that uh, Your Spirit will impress upon each person to respond according to their need. And so, Lord, we commit ourselves to You today and give You thanks in His name. Amen. Amen.